brought them to Jesus three times. So that's what we're doing this morning. We're bringing them before you. Jesus, the names of the people that we know that need healing um, from sicknesses, whether it's chronic or whether it's uh, an infection or whatever it might be. Look, uh, we pray for our brother Art, who is uh, in front of the hospital now, yes. and increased breathing and his lungs and oxygen. Lord, we pray for uh, Mary, uh, Mary's grandson, who is uh, needing a lung transplant. We pray you would touch that situation miraculously um, and bring uh, new life in, into his lungs, Lord. Um, we pray for uh, uh, Catherine, who had a, a situation with swelling in her eye, Lord. We just pray for healing there. This program would go down, um, and she wouldn't have to have uh, more of the surgery before that surgery was healed in her, even today. Um, or for other situations I'm not as aware of, Lord, we pray for your healing. Today, I pray that today will be a day of peace. Yes. Today will be a day of peace. Amen. You may be seated. Good morning to you. Welcome, welcome, all of you who are joining us here in the sanctuary and those joining us online. We're so grateful that you're here. How, how many of you are grateful for the worship team? Uh, a worship team that doesn't worry so much about just having a set. It's not like, how do we get through this group of five songs we plan? It's no, what, what is the Lord saying ahead of time? They're praying, and then in the midst of it, they're also giving direction. I don't know about you, but I needed worship today. I did. Uh, you do know, by the way, God doesn't need worship. You know that, right? I know, it's heresy, right? God needs. No, God doesn't need worship. God is perfect. God is self-sufficient. God is complete in Himself. We're the ones who need to worship. Because in worship, we align ourselves with He who is perfect. Something changes inside of us. And I needed worship today. I needed to be reminded of how good God is and what He has done in my life, including that He has rescued my life from sin and from death. That's what He's done for every single one of us. Um, I know that this year, 2020, I know we're in 2021, I'm aware of that, uh, that 2020 was a tough year. And I'm wondering, what were for you the hardest things that you had to face? And I'm not asking you to say it out loud, but think about it for a minute. What were the things about the COVID isolation and restrictions that were the most onerous for you, that were the most challenging for you. Uh, for me, of course, it's church. Uh, I like church the way it was. I like it being all out, in your face, impactful, go after Jesus kind of church. That's what I want. I want God to fill this house with His presence. I don't want to just do church. I want the church to be on fire with God's Spirit. So I miss Chairs being kind of normal, but even in chairs being normal, people didn't worry so much about the chairs. They were worried about meeting with God. Uh, the masks and all that stuff, well, that, that's been hard for me. Another thing that was hard is restaurants. Uh, my wife and I, maybe you're not this way, but my wife and I like to go out to eat. And for a while, restaurants were just completely closed down and we couldn't do that anymore. And then when they did open, it was for takeout or you had to eat outside in this little bubble and it was just... It was challenging. The other thing that probably was one of the harder things uh, for me was that travel was so limited. Um, I like us being able to do our vacation where we want, when we want. 
I don't want to have it be determined by what state is a lower number on the scale of COVID than New York State, so that when we go out, we don't have to quarantine when we come back. Uh, and I, I know that for some of you here today, you guys are like uh, high-end introverts. And so for you, 2020 was your dream year. You could stay home, get your book, put your little booties on, put a blanket over you, and just live with yourself. And you were like, wow, this is what heaven's going to be like. But for some of us, we, we, we like people a little bit. And we like to be able to get together. We like to go do things. And so for me, travel was hard. And maybe, like me, you're anticipating that 2021 will hopefully make some significant good changes in terms of getting COVID under control so that we can go back and travel the nation and travel the world a little bit. Uh, I have missionaries that I honestly and truly care about that I want to go and visit and encourage them in the Lord. And I feel bad that we are unable to make those trips right now. One of the trips, though, that uh, I don't think any of us will miss are guilt trips. You know what I mean, where guilt just seems to dog your steps sometimes. Things that you've done in the past, or maybe not even so distant past. Things that have happened in your life. Things that you have done that have just continued to bug the living daylights out of you. And one of the things I've been trying to embrace more fully this year than ever before in my Bible readings is the truth that guilt and shame and fear and I'm going to kind of lump it all together as condemnation, is something that God doesn't want us to carry around. It's not the baggage we're intended by God to take with us. So what I want to do today and over these next seven weeks is I want to look at what we're calling the uh, famous last words, the seven last words of Jesus. Now, when I say seven last words of Jesus, I'm talking specifically about the words that he spoke while hanging on the cross. You know and I know that after he hung on the cross and died and was buried, he was resurrected from the dead and he walked among people for 40 days and he said a whole lot more stuff. But I want to focus in on these seven last words of Christ and I believe that every single one of them has some benefits for us. Personally, In fact, if you're a believer today, if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus, a disciple, then you ought to be concerned about what are the benefits that Jesus paid for you upon the cross. So that's kind of what I want to look at over these next several weeks. If you would, you could open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 23. If you don't have your Bibles with you, they'll be up there. What I want to talk to you about this morning is the first word of Christ, which is the word of forgiveness. So what I want us to look at today is forgiveness. And I'm in Luke chapter 23 and verse 32. You can follow along with me if you would. There were also two other criminals that led with him to be put to death. And when they had come to the place called Calvary, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right hand and the other on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Father, forgive them, 
What I want to do today is three things. So if you guys keep notes, if you're like me, I like to do that. I, I like to kind of keep track in a logical way. I'm going to do three specific things. Number one, I want us to look at what we normally do with our guilt. What my experience has been, at least thus far in my very short young life. What is it that people normally do with their guilt? The second thing I want us to look at is what God wants us to do with our guilt. And then thirdly, I want us to look at what Jesus actually does with our guilt. So, what we do with our guilt, what God wants us to do with our guilt, and what Jesus actually does with our guilt. So, the first thing I want to look at is, what do we usually do with our guilt? And there are three things that I see that I have done in my life, and probably you have too. The first is what I call, we bury it. Way too many people believe the lie that if they just let sleeping dogs lie, they will lie there. Uh, they, they have this view that out of sight, out of mind. But I don't know about you, but how many of you have ever tried that? How many of you have ever tried just to bury your guilt? Just push it down deep. How many of you find that guilt is kind of like a zombie? It won't stay dead. It won't stay buried. It keeps cropping up. I have felt in my own life at times that guilt can interrupt my sleep. Guilt can even intrude on my dreams. Guilt can make me uncomfortable, take away my peace. And I keep trying to push it down and bury it deeper and deeper, but it seems like guilt keeps dogging my steps. It keeps haunting me. Yes, Jesus said, surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. But why is it that sometimes guilt seems more prominent? Part of the reason is, is because we keep trying to just bury it instead of dealing with it. David had this problem in Psalm 32. He tried this whole idea of out of sight, out of mind, about burying it. He tried this. And here's what he says. Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent... It's like when I pushed it down farther and farther, when I tried to forget it, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My, my vitality was turned into the drought of summer. We try to bury our guilt, and we do that in different ways. Some people try to bury their guilt by just minimizing it. They say things like, well, it was a long time ago anyways, and it wasn't a big deal. It was no big deal. Well, if it's no big deal, why does it keep coming to your mind? Why does it keep cropping up for you again and again? Some people try to rationalize it, and they say things like, well, a lot of other people do the same kind of thing, so I guess it's just common to mankind. I mean, I, I read a stat once that 80% of the men in church are hooked on pornography, so why should I let that bother me when so many are? And they try to rationalize away their guilt. And some people... Try to compromise. Just lower your standards. My father-in-law used to say this. He says, I have found the perfect solution to temptation. The perfect solution is just give in and then it'll go away. Now he said that tongue-in-cheek. But isn't that often what we do? People will say about Jesus, well, he just doesn't understand. Well, the Scripture says Jesus resisted every temptation that's common to us. What temptation did you want him to give in to so that you would feel better about yourself? We, we tend to try to compromise, bring it down to our level, lower our standards. A fortune cookie uh, said this, commit a sin twice and it won't feel like sin anymore. 
It's called hardening your conscience. Uh, you do something long enough, you stop feeling bad about it. It's like the 13th murder doesn't bother me as much as the first murder. But that's kind of what we do when we try to compromise. But David ended chapter 32 by saying this, I acknowledged my sin to you, O God, and my iniquity I have not hidden or buried. Proverbs 28.13, Solomon said, He who covers or buries his sins will not prosper. So the first thing we try to do is we try to bury our sins. The second thing we try to do is we, we, we fall into the oldest game that goes back to the Garden of Eden. We play the blame game. Here's Adam and Eve, created in perfection. They fell in sin, and Adam mans up big time. You know, Adam acts like a man. What's he do? He says, it's her fault. And what's Eve do? She says, the devil made me do it. But that's the kinds of things that we do. We think our kids are bad at this. How many of you parents have had the struggle of figuring out who actually did what among your children? You know, they get into a big fuss, there's a big fight. Mom, you've got to come help me. It's like you're trying to figure it out. They're all blaming each other. And the truth is, as adults, we do the same thing. We still try to pawn off the blame on somebody else. We say things like this. Well, and you see if you've ever done this. Husbands especially. I'll pick on you guys because I am one, so I'll do it for me too. Husbands, how many times have you ever said to your wife, well, I wouldn't have yelled if you hadn't, whatever that was. What's the implication? It's not my fault. You made me do it. Or we say things like, I'm sorry. How many of you guys have ever said, I'm sorry, but then you prefaced your sorry, your apology with, exactly, you blame somebody. I'm really sorry, but... We do that kind of thing all the time. Um, I wouldn't have done it if you hadn't. Um, we not only, like Adam and Eve, blamed each other, but the truth is they weren't really blaming each other. Who were they really blaming? They were blaming God. God, this woman you gave me, it's your fault, God. And I've heard people say that. Well, I put all the filters on my computer and on my phone. I put everything that I know how. God, if you didn't want me to see that porn, you shouldn't have let it come up on my phone. Forget the fact that you had to jump through how many hoops to get it to come up again. But it's God's fault. And we do that kind of thing all the time where we try to blame others. Proverbs 19.3 says, People ruin their lives. And again, this is the Message Bible, so it can say it this way. People try to... People ruin their own lives by their own stupidity. So why does God always get blamed? Do you know how you spell the word blame, by the way? How many of you can spell the word blame? What is it? B-L-A-M-E. So I think you ought to just separate the B a little bit from the L-A-M-E. Because whenever you blame, you be the blame. That's your problem. Don't laugh. I like that one, Nick. Come on. If God had given me a different family growing up, God had given me a better spouse, or more obedient children, or a better job, or more money, we blame God 
again and again and again. So the first thing that we try to do is we blame. We, or the second thing we do is we blame. First we bury it, then we blame it. The third thing that we try to do is the thing that I am probably most familiar with myself, is we beat ourselves up over it. In effect, when we do this, what we're doing is we're actually trying to mete out punishment for what we have done wrong. We're trying to exact the price from ourselves. Forget the fact that Jesus has already paid the full price. I have to do something because my sin is so bad, I have to pay some penalty for what I have done. I read once about a study done of patients in a psych center and looking at each individual and what brought them to that place in life. And at the end, the researchers concluded this. Over half of the patients in that in-person psych center could have gone home that day if they could have dealt adequately with two things. Number one, resentment. And number two, guilt. Guilt is when I feel bad about what I've done. Resentment is when I'm upset with what someone else has done. He says they all could have gone home that day if they could have dealt with their resentment and their guilt. Over these last several years, uh, I've gone on uh, something of an adventure where I've tried to lose some weight and get in shape. Uh, I recognized that uh, I was getting a little bit older and uh, I wanted to be able to enjoy my life longer and enjoy my grandkids. So I began to work out and I began to watch what I eat. I even, for the first time in my life, began to look at labels on food packages because up until that point, I didn't care about labels at all. I only cared that it tasted good. But I began to watch what I eat, and that was important for me to be able to have a healthy life. But one of the things I have discovered is that what impacts my life even more than what I eat is what's actually eating me, what's inside of me that takes away my sense of peace. It leads to, I mean, think about what guilt does for you, what shame does for you. And all of us are in the same box. We've all got it. Just be honest for a minute. We're all together in this. Doesn't guilt and shame and fear drain your energy away? Make you tired and fatigued? How many of you, when you're feeling like this, want to just go home and get in bed and cover your head with the covers? It tires you out. It, it, it leads to discouragement and even depression. And like, this life just isn't even worth it. But that's what guilt does when we don't handle it properly. David says this in Psalm 38. This is just an amazing statement that David's talking about his sin. He says, I've lost 20 pounds in two months because of your accusations. He's talking about guilt, what it's doing in him. My bones are brittle as dry sticks because of my sin. I'm swamped by my bad behavior, collapsed under gunny sacks of guilt. The cuts in my flesh stink and grow maggots because I've lived so badly. And now I'm flat on my face feeling sorry for myself morning to night. All my insides are on fire. I've had it. My life, my body is a wreck. I'm on my last legs. I've had it. My life is a vomit of groans. That's how David describes what it felt like for him as he was dealing with the sin and the guilt of his own sin. The problem with punishing yourself is this, and I, I've discovered it for myself, is you never know when enough is enough. In fact, the truth is, if you're going to be a self-punisher, there is never enough. Because no matter what you do, it's never good enough. And that's the danger of trying to deal with guilt yourself. So we bury it, we try to blame others, 
and we beat ourselves up. But what does God want us to do with our guilt? What does the Word of God say that we should do with our guilt? Number one, it says we should admit it. The first thing we have to do is we have to quit swimming in the river denial and say, it's me, O oh God, standing in the need of prayer. I did it. We have to stop burying it, denying it, ignoring it, hiding it, or any other strategy you have. We have to bring what we have done into the light of His presence. Some people try to keep so busy that their past could never catch up with them. Others, and I've watched it happen in this church, I've watched people who have blown it, instead of dealing with it, they move away. So I blew it in Warsaw, so I'm going to move to, to start all over again. Do you know the problem when you do that? The problem is this, that wherever you go, there you go. Let me say it again, because I don't think you all got it. Wherever you go, there you go. You, you can't run away from yourself. You take you with you, in other words. All the you that created this uproar and problem goes with you. Your change of address doesn't fix things. You've got to deal with it. You've got to start by admitting it. Proverbs 20, 27 says, The Lord gave us mind and conscience. We cannot hide from ourselves. And that's why guilt is so devastating in our lives. You can hide it from others, but you can't hide it from yourself or from God. 1 John 1.8 says, If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Can we be honest for a minute? Can we just, I know you're in church and that's unusual, but try being honest just for a second. Isn't it true that you're, you, you've sinned lately? Isn't it true? In your tone of voice. How, how many of you have had attitudes, issues? How many of you have been frustrated with somebody lately? I mean, come on, let's just admit it. You're a downright sinner. We all know it. We've watched you. You sin. And so do we. Every one of us have the same issues. We blow it again and again because we're human beings. We're frail. But God knew that. And he said, the first step towards freedom, the freedom that we sang about today, the first step is to admit, you got a problem. I sinned. I did it. It's to admit it. To stop defeating myself, I have to stop deceiving myself. I have to stop pretending it was no big deal. I have to stop blaming others. I have to stop trying to ignore it and hide it. I have to actually deal with it. It's not a habit. It's not just an addiction. It's not a sickness. Let's call it what God calls it. It's called sin. Sin. See, God has a solution for sin. He doesn't have a solution for all your masks that you wear to try to cover it over. God has grace for the real you, but not the you that's trying to hide. Lamentations 3.40 says, Let us search out and examine our ways and turn back to the Lord. As we're coming up on this season of the year where we're preparing for Easter Sunday and the sacrifice that our God, our Lord and Savior, has made for us upon the cross, wouldn't it be good to allow God 
to bring to mind anything that is unresolved so that we can deal with it. The scripture says, search me, O God. He's not saying for you to go on an archaeological dig of your own life. He's saying, God, you bring up what you want to bring up. And when you bring it up, I know you will have the wherewithal to deal with it. It starts with admitting it. Number two, accept responsibility. No more measuring the percent of blame. I've been married now for uh, 40 plus years. In June, it will be 41 years. Not as long as some of you, longer than some others of you. But one of the things I have found is that marriage goes a whole lot better when I stop worrying about Karen's 99% of wrong and I deal with my 1%. But isn't that how we think about it? It's that woman you gave me, God. If I would worry less about how it's divided out, how proportionally that person is responsible, if instead I just dealt with my stuff, the world would be a much better place. And so would your family and so would your marriage. So would your workplace. So let's begin to take responsibility. Now you all know the story of King David and Bathsheba that's found in uh, 2 Samuel 11. But the scripture starts out, and you can look at it later, 2 Samuel 11, you can read it later. The scripture starts out and says, at the time of the year when kings go out to battle. So this is the time when you go out and you defend your nation, make sure your borders are all secure. It says David stayed home. Did you ever wonder why? I mean, look at what follows. What's the progression that happens in the story? I've wondered sometimes if maybe David had already caught a glimpse of her on other days and thought, our borders are pretty secure. I'll let my chief, my Joab, go out and take care of things, and I'll stay back, because who knows, maybe I'll get another peek, just another quick look. I wondered what was going on that David chose to stay home. But he stays home, and the Scripture says, which is an interesting thing, the Scripture says, late at night, he got out of bed and went up to the roof of the palace and when he was there, he looked down and he saw a woman bathing. Now, you've got to ask yourself, what in the world is he doing up late at night, going out onto the roof and looking down at everybody around? It's kind of like when you live in an apartment building, you purposefully aren't looking through the windows of the apartment building across from you because you know you might see something you shouldn't see. But here's David. Gets out of bed to go up onto the rooftop. And then you've got to wonder about Bathsheba. What is she doing out bathing where anybody could see her late at night like that? Now maybe she said, I did it late at night so that no one would. They'd all be sleeping. I don't know. But the progression was, David calls for Bathsheba. He, first of all, he says, who is she? He says, oh, this is Bathsheba. She is the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So he knows she's married, and he still invites her to come right then to be with him Alone. What kind of married woman goes alone to meet with another guy? Just alone. Late at night. So it makes you wonder about the whole thing. If, if David were like us, he would say things like, well, God, it's not my fault. I was just up on the roof. I couldn't sleep that night, and I was looking down. It wasn't my fault I didn't go out to battle because, well, we, we, were, we were doing pretty good, and I, I, I didn't know that I would see anything. I know I'd seen it in the past, but I didn't know. I didn't know, no. David would have excused, he would have said, 
I blame Bathsheba's parents because if they were better parents, she would have been a more modest woman. But David didn't. In Psalm 51, David doesn't worry about Bathsheba's responsibility. He worries about his own, and he says this. Psalm 51, verse 3. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin. My sin is always before me against you, and you only have I sinned and done this evil in your sight. So you, you, you first of all have to admit your sin. And then you have to take responsibility. But James actually takes it a step farther in the New Testament. James says, confess your faults one to another. One of the things I have learned in life, and it's taken me some years to learn it, I'm not a quick learner, I have learned that though God can deal with my guilt, sometimes there's a residue, a feeling that lingers. And God in His infinite wisdom has provided a way to deal with it. You see, when we ask for forgiveness, God actually forgives us. But then, He goes on and says, if you want to be free emotionally, not from the penalty of sin, not from the sin itself, but from the feelings of the sin. If you want to be free from that, He says, confess your faults, your sins, one to another. Pray for one another that you might be healed. Sometimes the next step is you've got to find somebody who's trustworthy. I'm not talking about posting it on Facebook. I'm not talking about tweeting it out there. I'm not talking about telling the church gossip, whoever that is. I'm talking about finding somebody who's trustworthy. Somebody who's perhaps mature and wise. Who you can share your life with and say, I'm struggling in this area and here's what I did. And they're not imposing judgment or condemnation. They're standing with you. It says, confess your faults one to another. Which means we're all in this together. But that begins to deliver some level of freedom to your soul. Confession is to God first and foremost. But all of us need somebody. One of the things my father-in-law used to say, that at the time he said it, I didn't get it, but now I get it. He said he thinks the Protestants actually lost something when they broke with the Catholic Church. They lost the ability of having a confessor. Somebody that you confess to. Who can then do what Jesus said. He says, whoever sins you forgive on earth, they shall be forgiven them in heaven. He said that to you. He said, you as a redeemed child of God have the ability when you're meeting with somebody and you can tell by the Spirit of God the sincerity of their heart, you have the ability, in fact, you have the responsibility as a friend of God and their friend to say to them, I declare that this day you are forgiven. That's why this is so important in James. He says, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven forgiven them. We are made to live in relationship with God and with one another. So our confession is both to God, but to that trusted person who we know has our back. And then the third thing is we should ask for forgiveness. Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. We ask for forgiveness. And I know I've taken a long time trying to lay this out for you somewhat systematically, but just a couple more things. I don't think you need to keep asking God for forgiveness for the same thing over and over again. 
I think when you do that, you imply that God is either deaf or unkind. He has said that if you confess your faults, if you confess your sins, He will forgive you. He has said that. I don't think you need to keep asking. God delights in showing mercy, so you don't have to beg for it. You merely need to say, God, I know forgiveness is already mine. You've paid for all of my sins, past, present, and future. You've already paid for them all. I, though, bring to you where I have failed, and I again step into your grace and mercy, and I luxuriate in that mercy that you show to me. Because the truth is, we all blow it, but we don't have to keep begging every single time. So, I said I was going to give you three things. Those are two, real quickly, because of time. Okay. All right. Real quick, real quick. I'll just give you the points and you can do what you want with them. What does Jesus do with our sin, with our guilt? Number one, A, he forgives instantly. He says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Instantaneously, you are forgiven. And then he says, you are cleansed. You are cleansed inside and out. Letter B, he forgives completely. Colossians 2.13 says, You being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He has made alive together with Him, having forgiven you all your trespasses. He forgives completely. Number three, He forgives repeatedly. And by that I simply mean that the Scripture says in Hebrews that He ever lives to make intercession for you. So that as you keep bringing things, which we all do, we all blow it on a daily basis, as we bring these things before Him, He is constantly forgiving, constantly washing us. And then finally, number four, He forgives freely. The Scripture says He nailed everything that you have ever done wrong. Every sin, He has nailed to the cross. He's wiped it out. Now, what I want to do right now to end our time together is today is the first Sunday of the month, and so we normally do communion. So I'm going to have some of the ushers help with handing out some of these communion things. If you would take one of the little cups that we have right here. Uh, if you could do that, I would appreciate it. They're going to come around. These cups are a little bit different than we've usually done just because of COVID. It's kind of all in one. And there's actually two things. If you pull back just a little cellophane wrapper inside, you will see that there's actually a little wafer. This little wafer. And I know you guys have done it before, so you can grab that and we'll do that first as it's all being handed out. As we come to the Lord's table, though, even while you're waiting to get your element, I'm going to ask you, would, if you would, just to, in your own heart, begin to say, God, is there anything that I have that I need to deal with? Is there this residue of guilt that I need to have your freedom from? Sins that I have committed, I need. And sometimes our sins we do need to commit to one another. Sometimes we need to confess our faults to one another, whether it be your spouse or your family member, your children, whatever, where you know you have done wrong, sometimes that has to happen. But it starts, first of all, admitting it yourself, taking your own personal responsibility, and then confessing it to God. Does everybody have theirs? Everybody, anybody not have it? Okay, we got a few over here still getting. If you could raise your hands if you haven't gotten it so that the ushers can know. Right here. Thank you, Kathy. 
Okay. What I want you to do right now is to take this wafer out and hold it in your hands. It's just the little cellophane part, not the whole tab, just the plastic part. Take this wafer and hold it in your hands. Would you bow your heads? And I want you just to take a moment holding the wafer. This wafer represents the broken body of our Lord. He said, I'm the bread of heaven that's come down. But then that night of the Last Supper, he said, this bread is broken for you. In other words, he was broken. His body was broken upon the cross so that you could know wholeness, so that you don't have to live with guilt and shame and fear. You don't have to live with condemnation. Can you today believe that as you partake of this wafer, representing his broken body, can you believe today that what his word says is true, that you are forgiven and you are cleansed? Father, in Jesus' name, I ask that your hand and your presence, your spirit, would rest upon this as we partake together, that we would receive your pronouncement of forgiveness, complete and total forgiveness for all that we have done. And Father, where we need to take steps, led by your Spirit, we'll do that. We want to be people of integrity. But we start with you, as David did, against you and you only have I sinned and done this evil. So Father, we confess our sins and we receive your forgiveness. In Christ's name, amen. Now, if you take your cup and if you pull the whole tab back, you will get to the, carefully, you will get to the juice. This grape juice represents the shed blood of our Savior. He says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission, there's no forgiveness, there's no cleansing of sin. He shed his blood on the cross for you and I that we would know complete wholeness. David said in Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Well, Jesus comes on the scene. He says, no, I don't want to just cover your sin. I want to wash it away. It's washed away by the blood of Christ. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman in whom there is no iniquity. God doesn't impute it to you because he put it all upon Christ. Would you bow your heads again? Father, in the name of Christ, I thank you for this opportunity that we have as a family to share your table. This is your table, the Lord's table together, to share in the broken bread and in the cup of our Lord, which represents for us forgiveness of sins and cleansing. We receive it today in the name of Christ. Amen. 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 Aren't you grateful for God's forgiveness for you? Every single day, we need fresh infusion of awareness of that. I'm going to ask if you would, if you would stay in your seats until the ushers come in and dismiss you in somewhat of an orderly fashion, I think. And feel free, if you go out, wear your masks as you're going out. Don't forget to get your kids, by the way. We have enough kids. We don't need you to leave them behind. Get your kids. And God bless you. Have a great rest of your day as you continue to seek the Lord.
and go Buccaneers, okay. 